I'm Andrew Haynes, and this is the Fair Game Podcast, the place where we talk about all things golf. For this episode, we've got a guy that knows a thing or two about the golf swing. He's Sean Foley, and he's dialed in some of the biggest names in professional golf. We had to get him on the pod to learn more about his perspective on the game and what he's been up to recently. Let's get into it. I don't know if you remember this. You and I met very briefly at the U.S. Open at Wingfoot, like forever ago. Um, I was like on the like I was that random dude on the range because it was with COVID and his only fan, and we we chatted a bit. But um, yeah, here we are now. I work for Fair Game, which is fun. But I know a little bit about your background, um, and obviously just with the with the mental approach to coaching, and you know you've coached some very notable names. What did you major in in school? Out of curiosity, like, 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 let's start just to unpack the Sean Foley back. Cause like, I think it's an interesting story um, that I love to hear just the, like the, the, the full Sean Foley one-on-one. Yeah. I mean, I be, I think I set a record that I, I don't think anyone's ever been on academic probation for 10 semesters in a row and still hung in there. <laughs> not really a school guy, not really a indoctrination type of guy. I think if I wanted to be a doctor or an engineer, you know, then I think school, you know, necessary to go through biology and all the different aspects and math and geometry if you're an engineer. But sometimes you look in the world at the jobs people have and you say to yourself, but what major could they have taken that would really benefit them now, right? Mm-hmm. If, we could, if we could have seen the advent and future of podcasts, would it have made sense for people to work in communications and debate? Of course. But... I just, you know, I studied philosophy. I minored in black political thought. But I went to, I read a lot of books, but I didn't really go to class that often. Kind of the way I was raised, it's like you're going into a history class and you know that the history uh, is not necessarily written the way that it went down. It's just written by the person that won the war. So it's like, I didn't think that being able to, you know, just spit that out was overly impressive when it wasn't even true, right? So, like I said, I love I love to read. I've been around. I've had a lot of mentors who are really brilliant people. You know, I was probably one of the first people back in the day to be all over TED Talks. And I love to learn, um, but I like to choose what I'm learning. For I think sure. that makes it easier. I mean, you speak a lot about, uh, I mean, some like PhD level physics when you talk about some of the things that are happening during the swing. It's not rocket yeah. science. It's definitely science. And, and, you know, for that stuff, for me, too, that wasn't really that easy for me to learn. Like, num- I don't do well with numbers. I do good, I, you know, like frequencies and tone and pitch. And, and, and I learn, I can learn that way. Um, but math was never really a strong suit, except in grade six, because uh, Mrs. Lusk was my uh, sixth grade teacher and I had a massive crush on her. So. <laughs> I was top of the class. I was convinced I had a chance, but uh, it didn't work out. <laughs> Fantastic. When did golf come into the equation for you? Like, did you grow up playing the game? Was it always part of? I was playing soccer. Um, my dad's from Scotland. And so he kind of coached a couple teams. I played soccer growing up because we moved to from Toronto to Delaware when I was six. And then Delaware to San Fran at seven to L.A. at nine back to Toronto at 12, to Vancouver at 13, back to Toronto at 15. 
I never got to play hockey because I was never in Canada in my formative. I might be the only Canadian dude who's never actually played. I played like street hockey and stuff, but I didn't know after living, after living in California, going to high school in Toronto and playing, playing street hockey outside on the ice in the freezing cold. I was like, yeah, no, it's just absolutely not. This is not really my, this is not my thing. I love Canada, but I certainly didn't love the winters. Um, so my dad took me to the range. I think I was about around 10. Uh, hit some balls. We went back the next week. I liked it. Then I was at Vista Valencia in Los Angeles, which is a municipal course. That's where the original home of Jason Gore and, and many other really good players. And so I kind of picked the range there. My dad always found a way for me to kind of get a job at each course that I was at. So um, a membership was not happening. Um, I think by then he'd spent money on skateboards, surfboards, you name it. And we never, my brother and I never really manifested those things. So um, being Scottish and fairly cheap, he was like, all right, if you, if you want to play golf, you're going to work for it. So kind of basically cleaning clubs since I was about 11 years old and then working in back shops. The only thing I've never done in the golf industry has actually been in a pro shop. I cut greens, I did bunkers, I did weighted tables. I just never was actually in the pro shop. That's very interesting. So then, like, did you ever play competitively growing up, or it was always just kind of, like, casual for fun? Yeah, no, no. I, I, I was one of the first uh, – there was about three or four of us, the first Canadians to ever really play in AJGA events. Oh, cool. Tiger and Gilberto Morales and Ted O, and those were all really the top players at that time, Brad Elder. But, yeah, I was, I was, I was decent, like a decent player, but – like not a great player, but a good player. I think the best I ever got to is about a plus two handicap. Um, when you were younger, when you were younger, how much did like, uh, like, or what was your discipline like, like on the practice side of things, on the understanding the fundamentals? Like, was that a big part of it, or was it all feel back then? When when your body can do so many different things if it wants to, as oh, yeah. young and malleable. The glory days, yeah. Um, well, I grew up with my first coach was Greg McCatton. And Greg McCatton is kind of at the hierarchy of the golfing machine. So everything was literally accumulator one, two, three, four. Everything was really angular and a lot to do um, with the wrist. As I guess as we'll discuss later, it's like pretty much the when Dave Woods and I decided to build the pro sender, that is basically from my first lesson. My mm. whole life in the golfing machine, the handshake was like this. <laughs> with the right wrist and extension and then as you would shake hands like that you'd have to clear your hips this is what they literally do right so it's it's quite funny that pretty much the first thing i ever coached has arguably been the most important thing i think there is in, but that was the thing with the golf machine is that uh it's incredibly hard to read i don't i trust me i i put a thousand hours in on it but you know it's pretty difficult to read i'm not really that kind of individual but at least golf stood for a geometric oriented linear force and there's not bad to know that side of it. it it just you know people can talk about feel and rhythm and that's fine that i mean that is i i want to know that if you're coming to see me that what i'm telling you is based more on fact than opinion right and so the thing is when you're coaching people you don't have to use those big words it doesn't even have to sound like that it could be something incredibly simple i think Ultimately, the goal of coaching or teaching people is that you give people 
you know, you include them enough into the understanding that they can go and build their own understanding from. But, you know, if you, if you continue to put diesel in the Bugatti, you'll be, you won't even know why it works. And what people right. do, what human beings do, is we miss, the, we miss the super small things that turn into massive things over time. So next thing you know, they're pulling the transmission out and looking at the engine, and then right. someone goes, we got the wrong gas in here, bro. This is not going to work. Right. So, and I think that that's really the, that's the difficult part. So, and then, you know, when it comes to learning and it comes to human behavior, you're going to have cults. And so cults are going to be like, this is it. We're certain that this is it. And it's nothing but um, certainty freaks me out in a big way, uh, really freaks me out. So I just kind of bounced between, I had some mentors who were super technical and I had some mentors who made me hit balls in a fairway bunker and bare feet to work on my balance and my timing. That's also important. There is very much a math in the tempo of the swing and the timing of the swing. Um, so it's not one or the other. Uh, I think it's, it's all, you know, it's, it's all pieces of the puzzle that, that matter, right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that because like one of the questions that I wanted to ask was in regards to, and look, like there are lots of coaches and lots of teaching philosophies. It's like one question before we, I, I want to just unpack the pro center a little bit more as well, but like this balance of, uh, and it's not just with golf. Cause when you think about just the rise of mental health and, uh, you know, people doing things to better themselves and think about and approach their life in very different ways. Do you think that, how can I say this in a way that like, I'm not talking shit about people, but like, there's a lot of stuff out there and it's very difficult and challenging at least to comb through a lot of that shit. Like what's good, what's bad, what's right for me. Like, do you think that it's harder nowadays for people to find things in golf and in life that are, are, are helpful or useful to them? Or do you think that just part of the process as an individual, and I guess this is kind of like compared to, I guess like a golf journey is that, you kind of have to find and know yourself first before you know how to like fix the things that, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think, you know, sunlight, oxygen, exercise, love, knowledge. Those are like the best things in life are free and everything else costs a shitload of money. So those five things are free right there. And if we look at, you know, if we kind of look at the golf swing, for example, like if you want to be someone who's fit in the gym, you have to have mobility, you have to have stability, you have to have strength, you have to have power, you have to do cardio. You gotta, you gotta. It's it's really about being the full puzzle, not just not just working on strength, right? Because that mm -hmm. that will get strong, but you'll get injured somehow. If someone's just got unbelievable mobility, but they're not strong enough, they're going to get injured as well. So if I get really strong but then i don't have cardio then that's not going to help me in my sport either so when you look at the golf when you look at golf at the pro level you have to putt well from eight feet in be a good lag putter from 35 to 45 feet at 60 feet no one's really much better than anybody else it's just like basically just a hail mary in football isn't it mm -hmm. driving the ball well is very important now that's changed a lot over the years since data and measurements come in into distance over accuracy. Really important to be a good mid and long iron player. Not so imperative to be a great wedge player. Interesting. If you look at the LPGA Tour, that's like that. The 
data that leads to success, wedge play is very important because e the way they set those courses up, even on par fives, even the longer players can't really get home in two. I don't know why they set it up like that, but they do set it up like that. So wedges are impar like imperative. But for a guy in the PGA Tour, from 30 yards in, takes him 2.52 strokes to get the ball in the hole. From 100 yards, it takes him 2.7. So there's not – knowing that we have not infinite amounts of time and sunlight and life is busy, to practice from 30 to 100 yards isn't really going to give you that much of an advantage. It's only 0.18 strokes. Right. So to me, like looking at it, like at coaching, I wanted to get, you know, after 30 years doing it and, and almost two decades on the PGA tour, like how I started and how I've evolved is completely different. I still love the golf swing. I still understand the importance of it. But now that I kind of sit there and consult the people on the brain and try to learn more about the human condition and how human beings learn, the funny thing is I'm learning now the first thing I should have learned. Like, I can't believe this is the last thing that I'm learning. As Not to say there's not other things, but I think if you get into what I'm into right now, that's probably till the end of your life because it's it, like even the people that, you know, are experts at this say that they know 10 to 12%. The brain's like a universe. It's expansive and massive. Right. But like, how long have I been coaching human beings, which means I'm coaching brains, of course, this is the exterior, this is the form, but even that's like, as I'm looking at you, you don't look like your cells are made up of 99% water, but it is. So I think when you look under the hood a little bit more, you know, I think that it's helpful to understand like who you are talking to because you're just speaking to a brain, period. And the problem is 90% of that brain has been designed to detect threats and is very good at assuming fear. So there's only 10% that really can think about morality and right or wrong and wanting to see your daughter grow up and be successful and happy. Uh, most of the brain's got zero interest on that. It's just pure survival. And I think what we see in society is two things that we see, you know, just an increase in overall stimulus, like just pure stimuli all the time. And then two, you know, we're miles away from where we were not that long ago as to where we, you know, we would have been outside quite often. We would have been in touch with the earth, probably not with shoes on. Um, we would have eaten only when we had food. So fasting was normal. Um, and then we would have been in cold water often because how long has water been hot? Like only in wealthy countries. So what was, what's really funny is you look at the today, like a lot of the podcast and like the in things of sunlight and the time of the day, grounding and cold plunging and all that it's like well of course that's what we've always been that's what we've always been, right so now we have a society of inflammation and people take hot showers it's not a good idea but it, it it's just you know, dave matthews has a lyric it says progress takes away from what took forever to find mm -hmm. basically we see that you know they did this they did this uh they did this experiment using frequency uh, a functional mri on the brain and they basically said at the end that people in love or in their brain thinking of love, that their brain is almost completely shut off and they're in a very peaceful place. And it's like, yeah, guys, it's called love. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life where I was, when I was younger, where I, I hated someone or I was really angry or jealous or envious of someone. And that's not a very good feeling. And then when I had love for someone, I was like, oh, that's a much better feeling. I'm right. like, I'm, 
I'm done with feeling that resentment to anybody because what I came to understand is that, you know, like, like, uh, what was his, uh, who said it? Uh, Denzel said it, uh, they asked him when he won the uh, Oscar what he had to say to his critics. And he said, uh, I'm sorry that my angels agitated their demons, right? It's just so heavy, like such a good comment. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, he won for a training day, being a corrupt cop and not for a malcontent. <laughs> it is interesting because when you take that, this idea of, I mean, you mentioned it briefly when you talked about just when you made the pro sender, it was going back to like the fundamentals of what you were taught in the early days. And I think it's very fascinating. I mean, me being an amateur golfer, and I'm sure Eric has some perspectives as well, is that there's a lot of noise in the market in terms of bettering your game, et cetera, et cetera. This is going to do this. This is going to do that. And I think it's really interesting for you to say that, like, you're making something that's so simple, which I think is pretty cool. Um, what was the process like just to get to this point? Well, the thing is, is that, like, I've always been really smart to be around brilliant people. And I've always been attracted to really smart, like people who can teach me. And I'm, I turn into, you know, I turn into Barbara Walters. I just interview them. And, um, you know, over the, because golf is such an unbelievable connector, you know, I can turn the television on, I can watch Fox, I can watch CNN, I can listen about the Middle East, or I can call Thomas Friedman from the New York Times, who's arguably the greatest mind in the world as it relates to the Middle East. And the crazy thing is, the stuff they're telling me, he's not telling me, and he's the most in the know that anyone's ever been. And so what you feel bad for people because you realize that, you know, the domestication of their thought, all this stuff seeping in their understanding as they don't even know it's happening. And so here we are in, in here we are in, in golf, and you know, so much of the discussion is about the body and is about the feet, but we're holding on to the club with our hands. And, and so we're not talking about Messi. We're not talking about soccer, right? Right. There, there's this, you know, in the last couple of weeks, it's all blown up on the, and on the internet about short game. Should you be steep or shallow? And how many people are getting confused out there? And I, I wanted, when I, when I heard this whole thing and I saw everyone coming in and voicing in their comments and comment and comment and commenting and, and, you know, do, doing what we do, like, because we're chimps, we take sides. We have to take sides. Sure. Being part of a tribe is incredibly imperative to our survival, all right? Now, it isn't 300,000 years ago, but in that part of your brain, it, it's the same. It's the same. You, and you'll see what people do to be accepted and, and, and completely even change themselves. So to me, when I look at, look at it from that perspective, I just kept hearing like Alan Iverson in my head, we're talking about chipping, not the full <laughs> swing. Right. I look at how much time people spend fighting on these comment sections. And I'm like, man, I'm sure that if you took all this time and then thought of something that you could do to progress your life, and you did that for three months, you would be so busy that you wouldn't be able to come back and comment on this section. Right. And so when Dave built the, the casting for it and he called me and he said, what is the right wrist extension number on the PGA Tour? It's from 43 to 62 uh, around there, right? Um, but the average right wrist extension on the PGA Tour is uh, 51 degrees. So that's what we basically set the, uh, the pro sender at. So what we see in amateur golf at the top is a lot of wrist angles like this. So the left wrist is cupped and the right wrist is neutral. Mm -hmm. 
And so when you look at tour players, their right wrist is like this. Now, for a million years in instruction, you've heard instructors say, pretend you're holding a waiter's tray, right? Well, that, that, that's it. And the fact, there's been a lot of talk in golf about a bowed left wrist. Bowed left wrist is in the history of golf all the way back, right? Like we've seen that for a, billion, a million years. But, you know, between Morikawa and Rom and Brooks and DJ uh, and Victor uh, and Joaquin Neiman and all these guys, people go, wow, you know, that, that, that's it. But I can, I can do this and not get what I want to in my backswing. I can't really do that and not get what I want. And so the fact that most people playing golf who are right-handed are also right-handed people, when I would talk about their left wrist, it, it just wouldn't compute. So what is the, the, the two very, after 30 years of doing this, and look, I've given a shitload of money and refunds to people, so I've been wrong a million times. I, I, still, I still wouldn't say that I know what's right for either of you, but I definitely know what's wrong with you. I definitely know what's wrong for you. Mm -hmm. And I, that's, a place to, that's a good place to start from, right? So when you, when you look at the position that I showed with the amateurs at, at first of the left wrist uh, cupped and the right wrist neutral, you can see from there that the, the shaft is very steep coming in, okay? So meaning that the, with the mass of the club, this is kind of the, the most important point right here, is there's equal torque, that's why it balances. So when, when this gets this way coming down, then the body's gonna have to make a manipulation this way, all right? So when you look at 1,000 amateur golfers and 90, 966 of them slice it, what is that a function of? That's a function of the path of the club that it's moving on being too out to in, and then the club face being open to that. So when there's variance between the face and the path, the ball's going to spin. So what we see with PGA Tour players coming into impact is very high rates of closure. The club is closing very fast, right? So you can have a low rate of closure like a Victor Hovland, um, which is, I'm not sure, but I would imagine 2,500 degrees or so. And then a really high rate of closure would be Phil Mickelson, Fred Couples, BJ Singh. And to the point that you could see those guys down the line, their backhand would come off of the golf club. I mean, they're trying to square that thing so hard that it would come off of the golf club. So what we do know is that pros are better at squaring and releasing the club. But then there's all this talk in golf instruction about having a stable face and not letting the face do much. But understand, like, how fast could I swing this if I didn't do something to it? I can't. Right. See, so as soon as someone says stable face, I'm like, well, that's not even possible. Like even Tiger's putter opened nine degrees and closed another 10. His putter moved 19 degrees in an arc. So there's nothing stable about anything. Right. So ideally, one thing we've always seen is that great players come from the inside. So they hit the ball from the inside, much like a field goal kicker. Right. Coming this way. So. When I have good young players, their miss is a hook. And when I have bad amateurs, their miss is a slice. Now, I rarely have an amateur who slices a golf, who hooks a golf ball, right? And if he did, then he played pitcher or quarterback. He did something this way and learned how to move to throw, right? 
Because mm-hmm. really, we're throwing the golf club through space. We're just not letting go of it. So ideally, when, when you see the amateurs kind of pick it up to do this, then coming down, they're in this position. So what I said um, to Dave is the benefit is of getting the right wrist in there is we're going to give them the ability to have more time to keep squaring the face. But by the right wrist being extension, as the right arm is lengthening, Look at where that club comes from. It comes from behind me. So the problem with shallowing by moving the club out and away from me is any force this way is going to open the face. So now I have to be like a DJ or a victor, and most people just can't do that, right? Right. We're talking about absolute unicorns. And so the other thing that we know with amateurs and pros – so. I see plenty of amateurs on 3D who turn and I see plenty of amateurs who shift their weight enough. So you can, you can put them on a force plate and get them to turn into their right leg and then go ahead and post up on their left leg and stand up and rotate. And you can, you can see it on the, on the computer. They're doing it well. Now you go ahead and attach a club to their hands and it's completely different because the hands are the GPS. We're playing golf with our hands. So, I know there's so many debates about this, but I think you can end the debate if, if you just say, if we cut Dustin Johnson's feet off and he learned to balance on his ankles, would he still be able to hit a golf ball well? He, I think he would, okay? Mm-hmm. If we cut his hands off, how good would he hit a golf ball? You can't. I've seen yeah. some incredible people, but they were obviously born a certain way and then did this their whole life. So the adaptability of the brain is so incredible. In, it's in, that you could learn how to do that. Like you see people who are born without hands and you see the crazy range of motion they have with their feet and they can write with their feet and all that. That's because they've grown up like that. If you just lost your arms, you and I wouldn't be able to do anything like that. For sure. That's the, the kind of the difference is that just this point here at the top where the wrist looks super neutral there, left wrist is flat, right wrist is an extension. And then the other main difference between an amateur golfer and the pro golfers, amateur golfers overbend their right arm, and pro golfers don't have as much bend in their right arm. So we know at impact to impart force on the club, at, on the ball, our arms are going to be extending through the ball. So if they're this bent right here, in two one-hundredths of a second, they're just never going to get into that position. So that's why amateurs have – so I always say like with a player like Ben on – is the right wrist is club face control and the right arm staying wide is the contact control. And so that those are two things that, you know, I look back in, I look back in time. These have always kind of stood with me. And I guess where I was fortunate is, you know, I picked up a lot of rocks to look under it and see if there was anything there. Mm -hmm. But I've just always had a real good gut vibe about like, that just doesn't make sense to me. Like I just don't. So I've never really went down the wrong road for too long. Um, and then recognize too, at the end of the day, it's like, all right, I can know everything in the world about the golf swing in every metric and every number, but I'm still dealing with human beings. Like, right. It's interesting to hear you break down the differences between amateurs and professionals. Um, I'm curious with that, with that approach, like, just for my my basic understanding, um, coaches at your level versus me, I go to I'm a member at a club somewhere, and the you know a, a coach that's teaching there. What are the biggest differences just between someone that has you know the years of your experience in, in teaching players at different levels versus the average 
PGA professional, like, do you think the approaches to teaching the game are different or is it something that just fundamentally comes down to experience? I've always wondered about that. You know, it's Sean Foley, David Ledbetter, the names that we all, you know, the household names, if you will, versus, you know, I go down the street to some place. Like, is it the person? Is it the approach? Is it a combination of the two? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think even to this day, dude, like just the, like, even after all this I've done and all the perspective that I have and, and, and the fact that I know I'm okay no matter what happens, when my players still hit it bad, I feel this like deep insecurity still. It, and I don't, think, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. Um, I don't really, I won't lose sleep over it, so to speak, but I, I don't really care how my job does. I just really care how I do my job. And so I'd say, you know, the difference I think is, you know, between achieving and high achieving is sacrifice. And so like, it's not a pretty thing being on the road 25 weeks a year and getting your head beat in all these different golf courses and winning very rarely, right? Like you got to, whatever you think winning is, you can now remember winning can be defined. It doesn't have to be like, but yes, they do play for trophies and big checks. Um, I think, you know, there's enough information out there now that, you know, between TrackMan and all those things, we know exactly really what's happening. So it's not really an excuse that anyone could have to where, I mean, I remember back in the day when I first was one of the first people to use a TrackMan um, uh, and out on tour. I remember I was in debt when I spent like 30 grand on that. thing. I mean, it looked like a bad idea to anybody who knew me. No one told me, go ahead and buy it. Like, sure. I remember. I remember having a $2,000 camera that my wife almost lost her mind when I paid for it. And so I don't know, man, I just think we got one chance at life. You know what I mean? And I, look, I know that when most of us are gone, we're not going to really be remembered. And so how do I make the most out of my dash is I guess kind of the way that I've always, always looked at it. And I've always been into the purists from the philosophers to the hip hop artists. I've never been into, you know, into the radio. I've been into these artists who, just stayed making just the lyrics mattered to them and the music mattered to them. And yeah, they made a living, but very few people know them, but I mean, there's five or six of them who are better than Jay-Z. You know what I mean? So it's, for sure. it's it, it, I've always been that I've always been that way about it. And I just think that, you know, kind of my love for the game is, you know, I grew up in back shops and I grew up in pro shops and I grew up on the range sitting on wire baskets, watching, you know, good players and mini tour players. And I've just always been immersed in the game. And I think that the game is, uh, it's just a fantastic education and just in, in being a human being, right? Like, I mean, you can tell so much about somebody when you watch them play golf and you can pretty much know how they probably react to situations everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's just, uh, what did I say? What is guys yesterday? I was at lacrosse practice and the guy didn't know who I was, but he'd been playing golf. And I said, Oh, where did you play today? And he said, uh, I played golf. What did he, he called it an acronym I'd never heard of, but it was like golf was greatest of life's frustration. <laughs> That's pretty accurate when you really think about it. But the thing is, you know, I've always heard like they called it golf because all, all the other four letter words were taken up. But when he said that, I mean, I've been in golf for a long time and I was killing myself. He goes, man, you know what? I save my money up and then I go and play. And every time I leave, I'm like, fuck it, I'm never playing again. And then I wake up <laughs> next weekend and I'm like, 
I think today's the day I'm going to have a great round, right? He goes, there's no reason for me to be optimistic as bad as I am. And I was like, that's really interesting, right? Like I, he, and he still had no, he had no idea who I was. So I quite enjoyed the fact that I was kind of asking him, um, but yeah, he's like, I, you, I still don't know why I'm optimistic. Like, I suck. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know. I, you know, I've heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so when you're not working, Sean, which is I'm sure you're working a lot because, I mean, it seems like you're just working constantly. Do you like to golf or do you do other things? Like, do you play lacrosse? Yeah. I do like to golf. It just, it takes up too much time for me. Um, mm-hmm. There's no there's no balance in life, right? Like life is really about how you manage the imbalance, and I think you do that by being able to be present. So wherever you're at, you're at. So um, you can be in the same room with five people, but if you're not there, then you're not really there, are you? So I think that that's been more of of what I've you know what I've done. Like you know, my kids are not my life. I have my own life, and I've been having my own life, and they, they choose to play lacrosse, then my role as a dad is to support them, give them the opportunity. Um, but I'm not really that dad who enjoys being at sporting events. And, and, and the fact is they're there because they love it. So like no one's ever going to hear me yell. The only time I've ever got upset was when my, my son, uh, uh, he scored and then kind of taunted the goalie. And so I walked over at halftime. And we had a little discussion about humility. Mm-hmm. That I'm a, I'm his parent. I'm his dad, man. I'm not his friend, right? Like I, if, if he goes on to play in college lacrosse, great. Like it, I don't, for me, I understand the importance in my life of, of really like leaning into and understanding kindness and compassion and love and, and then educating yourself and reading. So, those are the four non-negotiables, education, and then those things. If they do those four, I don't care what they do. I don't care what they turn into. I don't care what they choose. Um, you know, I would never have end up, ended up here with, with, with growing up because it wasn't always easy street. Like it wasn't, I did a really good job of trying to destroy my own life. So, um, you know, just to see, like when I told my dad I was going to coach golf in 1998, he said, like, that's great. What else are you going to do? Like, mm. what do you have? <laughs> so what are you, you going to do, like, coach, like, you know, curling in the winter? Like, what? how does one make a, right. a job doing that? And so, you know, like, early days, it was kind of, you know, we did what we could. We charged 25 a, a, an hour for a lesson. We were hustling and giving out free lessons, trying to build business. And then waiting tables and in the winter going on unemployed insurance because we couldn't get a job. So it was, but I still think of those as like the good old days. Like that was a blast. Like when life was completely confusing and I had no idea what was going to happen. I've always loved um, the challenge and the difficulty of things. And I've always felt like just to bathe in discomfort is so important because, you know, I'm, I just want to grow. For sure. Yeah. By the way, uh, I think we should put this in the episode notes because I'm very curious around like what your daily commute playlist is like. Are you listening to music? Are you listening to podcasts? Are you listening to nothing? Constant music, like nonstop. Is it mostly hip hop or a mix? That's it. That, that's, that's it. it. That, that's it. Like there's, well, of course, there's a lot of reggae, jazz. I, yeah, I, yeah. 
you know, Miles Davis and all that. But then I love Pete Rock and DJ Premier and Large Pro. They just sampled them anyways. Um, it's mostly, it's mostly hip hop. Um, most of the time. And, and I like to listen to a podcast. I just, I don't always feel like I learn a ton from them because I feel like I kind of know a lot of what they're talking about. I've been, like I said, I've been around some really smart people and, you know, there's a lot of people who have come into the world now and starting to be known, but, you know, I read their stuff like 10 years ago. So, right. but, but probably music, m music for me, that's, that, that's my favorite. Uh, that's my favorite thing to do, but I will constantly have headphones on the whole day. Got it. Dope. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe sometime before we publish this, it'd be fun to just get a quick screenshot of what you're listening to. Do a little Sean, Sean Foley playlist just to get it, get inside the mind. It's pretty good. Yeah, for sure. I love all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, Pete Rock's great. Pete Rock, Mad Lib, like that, that whole time of music was fantastic. Yeah. Oh, it's still happening. I mean, that, that the, uh, Talib and Madlib just dropped Liberation too. That's if that doesn't win a Grammy, then nothing should ever win a Grammy. Uh, just <laughs> right. the, those two in their early fifties at the level they're at, both within their craft, is like so crazy to me. And I think that you know that's kind of it too. Is like you know I watch how these guys have done their career. So there's the option, right? There's like the Jay Z who is you know bar for bar as good as anyone, uh, but he branched out, and so hip hop was kind of the was, was the genesis and then he branched out into business and all these different things that he's got his hands in but he still to me i'll never think of jay-z as like part owner of a team i always think of like you know right i think a reasonable doubt is the first thing that i think about right mm -hmm. but then you have guys like like Tariq trotter like black thought who's just continued to stay on the the, the path to mastery and i'm i'm kind of i would say as a young man when I started out, it was like, you know, in, in golf coaching for me and being on tour, it was like battle rap, right? Like it mattered to me that my players were playing great and that it, that mattered to me. And now it doesn't, I've seen the illusion in, in, in all those worldly rewards. Um, not to say they're a bad thing, but I know that that's not really the, the key to where I want to be at within myself. And now it's just more about the idea of like mastery and the idea of just building just relationships. Like I said, man, we're not, we're not here for, we're not here for that long. And when we're gone, there's really nothing to significantly get overly stressed about right, right. now. Everything's important. Everything bothers us. Everything. Right. I, 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 I did yeah. a, I did a, 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 I made a comment on a post. So, Phil Mickelson was using the, the, he's been using the ball in the pro center. So it, it goes on the cuff. So he doesn't, he doesn't use this. Remember, Phil would have been one of the ones who was like really quite cupped, right? Right. And then he'd be steep coming down. So you can play like that. You just better have a really long backswing. So you have time to make sure, sure it's happening, right? Mm -hmm. Shortest backswing on tour is John Rom. Well, he's the most laid off with the wrist the most bowed. That works too. Right. So those are unicorns. Okay. From the least amount of flexion to the most amount of flexion, one has to stay long. The other one has to stay short. Okay. Right. So that's something 25 years ago, I would not have understood that. I would have, I would have, I, if people were hitting the ball really well, I probably wouldn't have done much with it. Mm -hmm. it it's, it's not really my preference. Like, 
I'm not here to teach you what I prefer. I, I'm here to teach you what it is that you need. So there's a picture at Live this week on the big, big scoreboard, and it was Phil at the top with the ball between his wrists. And so I did a little post on, on Instagram. And then this guy commented, picture of Phil, you are unfollowed. And I just commented back, bro, it's just golf. It's just golf. It's just a, it's just a guy trying to help his swing. Yeah, that's fundamentally what we're talking about here. You know, the thing that I love about golf, you know, you've hit on it a bunch, like it's a game and, you know, we all want to get better. The optimism is hopefully there for a lot of us, but that really does come from that perspective on life. And it goes beyond just like, uh, you know, balancing, I guess, that approach to everything and then having fun for a few hours on the course. Um, or, you know, if you're a professional, it's a little bit different, <laughs> not just fun, but again, it still comes back to that perspective. It seems like. I think the problem though, that we just, you know, we all know I was playing golf with this guy one day. Um, he's a buddy of mine. Good, great dude. And we're on the first hole and he's hit a nice drive down there. He's about a 12 handicap, about, about a 12. So that in the, in the world of golf, that means you're really good, basically. Right? Yep. Yep. So he's like a 10 to 12 handicap, um, but drives the ball really nice. Chipping and wedge play is pretty poor, but he can drive the ball really nice. Um, hits one down there. We're getting down there, and his phone rings, and he picks it up, and he says, huh, hello. And then I just watch him go, like, just pale and uh, kind of grabs the yardage. He's sitting there, and he's, like, in, I can tell that was not a good phone call, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I said, what was that all about? He's like, uh, I just realized I lost my three biggest contracts. And I'm like, oh, shit. Bro. Well, he goes on to shoot 117, right? Maybe 10, 11, 12, 13 months later, I don't know the exact time, we're in the same hole, the first hole, and he gets a phone call and finds out that he gets basically all the AT&T accounts in Florida. Huge day. He's three under par standing on the 18th hole. <laughs> no, sorry. He's two under par. He hasn't missed a shot in three and a half hours. Mm-hmm. So when people say, you know, like the golf's mental, it, I don't really like that word because mental to me is like a mental issue is when someone has PTSD from the war. They, they don't want to continue to have nightmares. They don't want to continue to look everywhere they look and see all these terrible things they saw. Or people have schizophrenia where they have like, you know, they hear seven voices in their head. That, that's mental to me, right? The fact that we are cavalier about perspective and think that we should get so much, right? You know, should get so much. And, and we're owed so much. And but we don't understand what our skill level is. And so we think it's here, but it's actually here. Mm -hmm. Well, then when we play golf, of course, we're going to leave frustrated because what we think is real is not real. But that's the best part about reality is that it's not permanent. And so as he found that day when he found out he lost all of his contracts, where his brain would have went, what's going to happen to me over the next couple of years and my kid has to go to college and what's going to happen to my retirement and, 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 and. All of those fearful discussions that he was having with himself would elicit so many chemicals out into his system that he's not going to operate at all. Whereas... The next time 
So he's way too good to shoot 120 or whatever it was, and he's not nearly good enough to shoot. Uh, uh, he ended up doubling the last to shoot even par. Mm-hmm. He's not good enough. That. He's not good enough to do that either. And I think that you could do a whole study around those two experiences. So whether it's us and we're at work or we're struggling with spousal issues or all these things that are real, this is real. Like, right? Most people don't really like themselves. So how are they going to sit in a room full of other people and not have conflict? Sure. And so you go to the course and you can't play for, you can't play because you got too much going on. You're too busy. There's too much noise. There's no clarity. And then, you know, you have the other day where you go out and, you know, your buddy calls you and you actually have three hours and you're like, yeah, I'll meet you. And you run to the first tee and you have the best nine holes up. Right. So it's, it's, to me, it's just to be, you know, the, the, the golf hall of fame is full of people whose bag was better than everybody else's because most of the time when PGA Tour players come off a golf course, uh, they're slightly frustrated. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do you see a, a hundred incredibly at peace and happy men walking. Right. Expectations are here. Right. Yeah. But I mean, if you want to have expectations, right, like if, if your expectation is the world's at peace then you're going to have a lot of frustration, okay? If your expectation is that you're going to shoot a 66, which means that every time you hit it in the fairway, you probably have to get a good lie, you're probably going to end up frustrated. So expectations, one, like if I then shoot, if I expect to shoot 66, and I do, then it's just, oh, right. But if I don't, then I'm upset. So I think one, expectations lead us to being, uh, upset and stressed and being frustrated and then they kind of suck the joy out of the other side and yeah. so for me my what are my expectations on any given day i don't really have any i mean i i, I don't i i know what i'm i know what i can control i can control what i can control is i control i can control my effort i can control my focus i would argue you can't control attitude because there's so many people out there who people are telling them to have a better attitude and they have it one day and then they don't have it the next day. I don't really think that I've been around a lot of successful people. And if you told me that self-belief was a one-to-one ratio with success, I'd tell you that's not true. If you told me that confidence was a one-to-one ratio for success, I would say that's not true. And if you told me that patience were a number one-to-one ratio for success, I would tell you that's not true because I met a lot of insecure, successful people. I met a lot of people who felt like they had imposter syndrome and that's what pushed them to continue to get better and better. And then I met a lot of impatient, successful people. So it, it's just kind of challenging those, you know, growing up, you know, you say to a kid, hey, you believe in yourself. No, you need to believe in yourself. Well, then the poor kid thinks something's wrong with him because he can't believe in himself. But really, life isn't about being confident. Life's about being competent. So if you're competent, if you're competent as a knee surgeon, then it doesn't matter if you feel good or bad that day. You still know what to do. And you might get done and feel like you did a great job and you didn't. And you might feel like you did a terrible job and you might have done the best job ever. So I think it's really important not to really pay attention to how you feel um, because it just seems to change you know, faster than the weather. And I think what you need to know as a, as a meta perspective, as kind of an anchor understanding, is that if it's cloudy above, it's still blue above that. 
if it's a hurricane, it's still blue above that. So regardless of what you're going through and regardless of what it looks like, it'll be okay. You just have to get, you have to go through it to get to it. Right. I feel like I just took a lesson. Is that weird? I do too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fair Game Podcast. If you haven't already, you can hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever service you may be using. We've also launched the Fair Game app, golf's first digital clubhouse, the place to play your game and connect with golfers across the country. You can find it in the App Store or on Google Play. You can also find us on Instagram at Fair Game Golf and check out some of our original videos on our YouTube page. You can find all these links in the podcast episode details. We'll see you next time.